This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is For I Left Populism by Chantal Mouffe. We are currently witnessing in Western Europe a populist moment that signals the crisis of neoliberal hegemony. The central axis of the political conflict will be between right and left-wing populism. By establishing a frontier between the people and the oligarchy, a left populist strategy could bring together the manifold struggles against subordination, oppression, and discrimination. This strategy acknowledges that democratic discourse plays a crucial role in the political imaginary of our societies. And through the construction of a collective will, mobilizing common affects in defense of equality and social justice, it will be possible to combat the xenophobic policies promoted by right-wing populism. In redrawing political frontiers, this populist moment points to a return of the political after years of post-politics. This return may open the way for authoritarian solutions through regimes that weaken liberal democratic institutions, but it could also lead to a reaffirmation and extension of democratic values. For a Left Populism by Chantel Mouffe, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is part two of my two-part interview with Asla Bali on the Syrian civil war and the larger geopolitical conflicts that shape the Middle East, with an emphasis on the role played by the United States, since that's where this podcast is based, and those are the destructive powers that be that those of us who live here must fight to transform. During part one of our interview, which you should definitely listen to before listening to this installment, we discussed the various powers who are sacrificing the lives of Syrian people in the pursuit of their perceived geopolitical and sectarian interests. In this installment, Asla and I discussed the restrictive frame that dominates American discussion over Syria, one that posits our government's options as either doing nothing or intervening militarily. We then assess the lack of a coherent, heterodox left-wing foreign policy in the U.S., something that we desperately need as the possibility of the left taking power becomes newly plausible. Okay, before we get started, please support this podcast if you listen to it and like it a lot at patreon.com slash the dig. You'll notice that Asla sounds like she's in a studio with me rather than talking over the phone. That's because we paid for a producer to record her in person. We did the same for my recent interview with Boots Riley. We are spending the money you donate to make the show better for you. What's more, we've got a weekly newsletter for contributions of $5 a month. $10 gets you Jacobins, the ABCs of Socialism, or Assad haters' mistaken identity. For $20, I have a lot of great lefty books to send you. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Also, we have a live dig event coming up really soon, August 17th, 7 p.m. in Brooklyn at Verso Books. 
It's on the left response to the climate crisis, and I've put details in the show notes. Okay, here's Asla Bali, who recently wrote a piece on Syria with Dig Superguest Aziz Rana, published in the Boston Review, entitled Remember Syria? They also just published a follow-up to that essay, responding to their critics. I've linked to both in the show notes. Bali is a professor of law and the faculty director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at the UCLA School of Law. Her research interests center on two fields, comparative law of the Middle East and public international law, with a focus on the intersection of international human rights law and the laws of war. Your argument for a inclusive political settlement is certainly not about appeasing Assad, since it's the status quo that the U.S. has been so involved in creating that has given him the very license to commit all sorts of atrocities. But nonetheless, I understand that critics of your article have accused you of doing just that. It seems as though debates over Syria in the U.S., at least on on the left, seem seem to fall into debates over whether people are sympathetic or oppositional enough to Assad and are also stuck in this framing of either doing nothing, quote unquote, or intervening militarily. Can you say a little bit about the, the state of the debate that you're intervening in? Let me just start with that binary that you pointed to, which is the notion that in the face of um, injustice, oppression, authoritarianism, et cetera, the choices are do nothing or do something, where do something is a massive use of force uh, and do nothing is basically being complicit in repression, complicit in the actions of um, you know, terrible repressive uh, authoritarians like Assad. Uh, this idea, this binary framing is, we're trying to say, deeply problematic. First, because uh, it's almost never the case that the United States is doing nothing. Uh, and so identifying doing something exclusively with direct armed intervention obscures all of the ways in which the United States is massively present in the region and already present and producing the conditions that people then are calling to resist or that people um, want to see changed. There's also a direct tie to the persistence of American exceptionalism across uh, the political spectrum. So this notion that I've already touched on in our conversation that when America does something, it's basically going to be intention, well-intentioned, at least benign um, motivations, or that even if there are mixed motivations, so there are some strategic goals that are going to be pursued in the face of a humanitarian tragedy, that's acceptable because U.S. Mo- military power has the potential to be exercised as a force for good. That basic idea that the U.S. can intervene to right a wrong, to save a people, to end carnage, and that this is the nature of American intervention in the region is, you know, sort of deeply 
uh, entrenched and it's a sort of maybe post-World War II or an imagined sort of identification of the United States with anti-colonial action in an earlier time. But what we're trying to point to is that intervention by the United States, particularly where it's tied to regime change, first of all, remains a tactic without a clear strategy. We've seen this from Iraq to Libya to Syria. And this is because the United States is wary of popular inclusion and democracy in the Muslim or Arab world. When the United States has mixed motives and part of its strategy is producing and reinforcing a pro-American status quo or alliance, then democracy is almost always off the table. A pro-American regime uh, that would succeed a regime change is very likely to be precisely the kind of regime that those local actors that are calling for intervention and, and calling for assistance are trying to resist an authoritarian strongman regime willing to toe an American line in the face of popular opposition to that line. So what then happens is, in an intervention, the narrative um, that we are liberators or we're arriving to uh, you know, topple a dictator or save a population quickly devolves into a pursuit of geostrategy, which is inconsistent um, with the kind of vacuum of power created by a regime change and then all of the work that needs to be done on the ground to produce more uh, local, authentically political, um, inclusive institutions. Instead, what the United States will prefer is for a strong man to quickly emerge, to back, who can reproduce some measure of stability, but in a pro-American um, articulation in the region. So... First of all, there's that. There's the misalignment between the goals that the United States inevitably will pursue once it begins to intervene and those of the population on the ground that has even perhaps invited intervention, but in the hopes of pursuing its own self-determination goals or its own goals for a sustainable transition away from authoritarianism, rather than simply enabling their territory to become yet another chess piece in a, a kind of American grand strategy. Once armed intervention is on the table, though, once the idea that America must do something is valorized and that something is understood as a kind of military intervention, then negotiated solutions get foreclosed because, first of all, incentives on the ground for different actors are shifted. There's an expectation that intervention is on the horizon. This is precisely what we describe happening in Syria. And so all of the actors are essentially geared to expecting not a negotiated or political solution, but rather a military one. And it's simply a matter of time. When will an intervention come? When will conditions warrant it? So what ends up happening then is interventions, especially those that are partially justified in humanitarian terms and called for in the context of do something, do nothing, demands that the United States intervene uh, in a context, result very frequently in worse outcomes for civilian welfare by prolonging violence, by precluding political settlement, and by ultimately being tied to a set of geostrategies that are not consistent with the goals of civilian actors on the ground. Uh, and that's basically uh, the, the sort of uh, analysis that we're trying to provide to get folks to understand the anti-intervention position, not as a position of either do nothing or as a position that's intended to um, just succumb to an existing status quo of repression, but as a very clear understanding of what the actual consequences of American force in particular and American deployment of violence in particular are for the region, have been for the region, and are likely to be, and for what reasons. So we're, for example, more than willing to acknowledge that Assad and his backers bear the greatest responsibility for the militarization of the conflict in Syria, and nothing that we call for is intended um, to improve uh, the sort of bargaining or leverage of the Assad regime. Obviously, that's not our goal in any respect. But, uh, you know, we 
think that in this instance, and indeed in generally in assessing whether an intervention is something that is desirable or whether an intervention is something that can ameliorate conditions on the ground, there needs to be a case-by-case contextual assessment of what the, the predictable consequences of an intervention will be. And in our assessment, a predictable uh, consequence of an American intervention, military uh, in Syria would have been the exacerbation of already terrible conditions. And indeed, the half measures that were taken by the Obama administration demonstrate the damage that the United States can do when it begins to appear to commit itself to something like an Assad must go strategy. Now, is this a critique of local actors who call for external support? Absolutely not. We absolutely support uh, the notion that local actors are entitled to call for external support and that there are circumstances where armed resistance is legitimate. But given the misalignment between U.S. strategic goals and those of local actors who are seeking to, you know, some kind of sustainable transition away from authoritarianism, we as, you know, analysts that are sitting in the United States assessing what this government ought to do or what this country ought to do in the region find that that contextual analysis of whether or not such an intervention can meet the really basic test of do no harm results in an an assessment that says, no, there's no way that the United States can intervene uh, militarily in a way that would ameliorate the conditions on the ground in Syria. The United States that's intervening is not the United States of liberal interventionists' imagination. It's the United States that we have right now, and that is deeply steeped in a centuries-long history of settler colonialism and imperialism, that it has done little to nothing, nothing to break with. And this is not, by the way, either saying that therefore the Americans, I mean, we obviously lay out the case that the United States has not done nothing. To the contrary, the United States has done a tremendous amount already in framing incentives in Syria, in providing funds and arms, in training, in incentivizing regional actors, and in doing a lot to prolong conflict and forestall um, even the possibility of negotiation. And we're not naive about the likelihood that a negotiation or a political settlement today is attainable or feasible in comparison to where we were, you know, when we first started writing about this in 2012. But it still remains the one thing that the United States can clearly support. And again, I gave the specific example of Idlib, a humanitarian catastrophe that we can foresee right now is on the horizon and for which there is a possibility of committing to trying to shift incentives in order to forestall that happening. So there are you know, forms of intervention that are possible that are about framing the possibility of a political settlement. So we're not calling for do nothing. We're calling for doing specific things, providing humanitarian aid, resettling refugees, um, engaging in the in the political process that makes uh, for the possibility of an inclusive negotiating table um, available, or at least stopping opposition to that. Uh, now, we're very far away from uh, the United States being likely to shift in the direction of our recommendations, but it's at least incumbent on us to come up with a clear account of what those recommendations would be should there be a moment, if not now, then um, under you know a successor regime to the Trump administration in which there might be a role for a left or progressive conception of what American foreign policy can look like. And that really connects to this question of a profound rethinking of the U.S. orientation to the region as a whole. This is exactly what I want to talk about next, which is the lack of a coherent left-wing heterodox foreign policy in the U.S. and the utter necessity for it, especially at this moment where we have 
while we have this you know far right government in in power but an ascendant left that is increasingly seeming to be a plausible alternative to that to that right wing government thinking through some of the, the roots of the the muddy left wing thinking on us foreign policy it seems to me that before the iraq invasion the the left's message was was simple it was no don't do it but then after the invasion changed the facts on the ground the 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 what to do became a lot more complicated and the anti-war movement for a variety of, of reasons collapsed but it, the collapse coincided with a lack of clarity about what the position of the anti-war movement is and i think that's become only more confusing with the rise of isis i don't think i've ever ever heard a coherent or consistent left-wing position pro or con on what the u.s participation in the multi-party war against isis should be never um I, it's generally ignored on the left because it's an unpleasant thing to think about, I think. And and adding to that th- that uh, unpleasantness is thinking through um, the situation with the Kurdish-led YPG, which controls, as you mentioned earlier, a huge swath of territory. And many of my listeners are quite sympathetic, I'm sure, to their struggle. And some, I imagine, have likely fought alongside them. Uh, but, but there's a bit of a quandary for the American left and that they hold the territory that they do, this, you know, m- militia that th- this army that is, uh, you know, anarcho-communist inspired and and deeply feminist, that they hold the territory that they do because of American air power, um, and then there's also the fact that they've been accused of, of of serious abuses, though those accusations are heavily debated. Can you say a little bit about the rise of ISIS and the war against it, and the sort of complex? situation that's put American left-wing foreign policy thinking in? So um, let me just start by uh, where I had left off for a sec and just articulate what I think an alternative strategy for the region would have to be, which itself then I think lays the foundation for thinking about what do we do in a circumstance like the rise of the Islamic State. So the first piece of an alternative strategy would be a profound rethinking of the foundational commitment of the United States to geographical omnipresence. There's a huge American military footprint in the region, and that perpetuates a view of the world as in crisis, the region as pathological, and a place where the United States must intervene decisively wherever its interests are imperiled. Uh, And this framing then produces the necessity argument uh, when something like the Islamic State emerges or when any perceived threat emerges to a balance that is premised on an American-dominated alliance as the core stabilizer of the region. This really has to be drawn into question. Rethinking this orientation and rethinking this foundational commitment to omnipresence would mean committing to reducing the U.S. role and assistance to the region. Uh, And there's a lot of reason that we can expect tremendous resistance to a move along these lines. So let me just say for a moment what that is. First of all, obviously, there are lobby groups um, and there is the legacy of September 11th and and even their sort of bureaucratic incoherence where there are different um, parts of the American state that are deeply committed, uh, whether the Defense Department or aspects of the State Department and other parts of the state that are, you know, skeptical of the need for the United States to have a large role specifically in this region. So there are those kinds of um, sources of resistance 
to a reduction of the American role, but the, it's unlikely for reasons that go beyond all of this, beyond lobby groups or bureaucratic incoherence or the legacy of 9-11, specifically that both political parties take as given the centrality of pacification and global omnipresence for the promotion of American in, interests, despite the evident counterproductivity of these policies. And nowhere is it more clear how counterproductive the policies have been in than in the Middle East. Uh, so a domestic reappraisal of the place of the United States in the world, and for the purposes that I'm interested in, specifically in the Middle East, is urgently needed. And this is something that I think is basically absent as a grand strategic thought uh, on the left and needs to be sort of explored, needs to be thought through carefully, because it is once you accept the notion that you have to have this size of an American footprint and that the way that American interests are policed is through decisive intervention wherever they're imperiled uh, in the world, then much of the rest of what we see in the Middle East follows from that set of commitments. And it's those foundational commitments that have not been interrogated. Second, what does a politics of transnational solidarity look like? I mean, that's the real question that you're posing in the wake of the Iraq war. Before the Iraq war, it looked like simply opposing that war was a clear way of just expressing transnational solidarity. So what does a politics of transnational solidarity look like? This was um, the, the core of a question of thinking about an approach to the region in the wake of the Iraq war, when before the Iraq war, that form of transnational solidarity could simply be expressed by opposition to the war. But in the wake of the war and with the complex forces that were unleashed by the war and the destabilization of the region as a whole, it became much more difficult to articulate a clear politics of solidarity. And in fact, you found people on the left imagining that solidarity required um, identification with calls for intervention. So, for example, in Libya, uh, again, in Syria, the idea that American intervention was itself a form of solidarity with those on the ground struggling against authoritarianism is part of the reason why it becomes more and more difficult to think about these complex cases. But I think returning to the question of what does the politics of transnational solidarity look like, it's important to understand that there's a radical way of rethinking what sovereignty is for the peoples of this region in a way that is not provisional. So in other words, in a way that is not simply derivative of American interests, but is actually about inhabiting their own interests. That would mean a regional arrangement um, in the Middle East that isn't premised on U.S priorities isn't premised on U.S. geostrategic policies, but rather is premised on expressions of indigenous preferences. Now, there is going to be a period in the Middle East of tremendous um, disruption, dislocation, transformation, um, as the region grapples with the consequences of all that has happened um, frankly, if we just even look only at the post-Cold War period from the 1991 Gulf War to today, Basically, the region has undergone an astonishing level of violence, most of it occasioned by external interventions. And a lot of the givens, a lot of the sort of distribution of power in the region has been upended. What we see at the moment is an attempt to um, return to form in some way by bolstering the Saudis, Emiratis, and Israelis and creating a kind of regional alignment that is to produce the old kind of strongman stability uh, that Trump so admires. That is not a model that could possibly um, have you know, any relationship to an idea of transnational solidarity. But it's also not the case that you can imagine a region that is going to simply be transformed into a stable expression of local preferences overnight. That's simply not going to be possible. And that's because um, there, 
there are political transitions that have to play themselves out. The causes of the Arab uprisings are only becoming more acute in the region, including you know, significant environmental devastation, unemployment, corruption, you know, tremendous difficulties that many of the economies of the region face, a population boom. There are fundamental underlying drivers that require a new political bargain. And the point is that that political bargain is, has to emerge in a way that's driven by domestic events and domestic considerations, which for the United States would mean doing less in the region and specifically doing much less to try to shape the region around a set of um, contingent American preferences, uh, because those preferences simply don't align with those of, of folks on the ground. So this would mean setting much more realistic expectations about what Washington's influence can do to control events as the ongoing implications of the Arab uprisings work themselves out. And it ha it means taking account of the kind of moral hazard of positions taken lightly, such as Assad must go, that have decisive and often deeply unanticipated effects. Reducing the American footprint in the region in this respect would significantly improve stability just by removing one of the critical um, factors that has proven destabilizing from Syria to Yemen, from Iraq to Libya and beyond, which is the presence of American goals, actors, and incentives distorting what's happening, even with respect to the framing of preferences on the ground. Another key element would be to put Iran at the center of trying to undo some of the damage that's been wrought by the dangerous escal escalation of sectarianization in the region. The, a lot of this has been driven not so much by action by Iran, although there are plenty of action that the Iranians have taken along sectarian lines, particularly in Syria. But before that, in Iraq, just by fear of what um, a redistribution of power in the direction of Iran as a result of the toppling of Saddam might mean, both amongst um, you know Saudis and Emiratis and amongst the Israelis, this produced a, a destabilization that then required the United States itself to back a fundamentally sectarian approach to the region. And then, of course, Iran also took advantage of a situation. So this is, a, this is, again, how U.S. action has both decisive and largely unanticipated effects that themselves have made the region much more profoundly unstable and have produced the kinds of logics that we now see as and stand apart from in the United States and describe as if they're distant pathologies produced by some you know, internal deficiency in the region as opposed to direct actions taken by the United States. So if political transitions need to um, get underway, and there's not going to be any possible way of avoiding that in the region, given what the Arab uprisings revealed, the best thing that an American left transnational solidaristic position might be able to do is reduce the profile of the United States and then commit to trying to address the long-term consequences that have been wrought by past American actions, specifically in terms of the destruction of infrastructure in countries like Iraq and Syria, in Libya, uh, and at the moment, given the direct role that the United States is playing in facilitating the coalition um, bombarding Yemen, also in Yemen. So fundamental commitments to reconstruction aid. But again, even here, what would that mean? Uh, reconstruction aid in a universe in which the United States has reduced its profile in the region, it would mean that in providing assistance, the United States could not commit its monies and funding to the project of picking winners and losers 
um, you know, putting the thumb on the scale on behalf of this actor versus that actor, demonizing one set of actors and privileging another set of actors by through the disbursement of monies, because that simply is another iteration of the same policy. So it would have to be, for example, um, you know, providing aid through a, a coalition or panoply of local NGOs, of a third party that has international participation across a broad spectrum. I mean, it would be about thinking creatively about how to address reparations for what has been done without continuing to reproduce the actual dynamic itself of continuous intervention. Uh, so it's a complicated position, but it is a position that can be articulated. And it has some other basic prerequisites. Stop demonizing political Islam. Start Stop foreclosing potential political solutions that may actually be the best choice contextually for um, local actors that are making you know, decisions for themselves about what the next step is in trying to come to a um, local settlement of longstanding political crises in the country. It also means, um, you know, stopping the kinds of protection and support that Israel has enjoyed that has allowed it to be immunized from consequences for its own actions. So it would mean uh, committing to civil, political, and human rights for Palestinians living under Israeli rule, as much as it means committing to the same kinds of rights and capacity for local self-determination of other peoples of the region. Making these left-wing foreign policy items into effective politics, I think, I think what it will require more than anything is connecting domestic and foreign policy and politics, which I think the American right does very well with these notions that they, you know, that our, our troops fight over there so we can enjoy our freedoms over here. They fought so that you don't so that you stand for the flag all these things are constantly perpetuating the idea that that foreign wars are constitutive of our domestic freedoms when of course precisely the opposite is the case but i think the left has not done a very good job making that case and one critical way that this case could be made, perhaps, is your your proposal that the U.S. admit 400,000 Syrians over the next four years, noting that the U.S. settled more than 300,000 Vietnamese refugees from the U.S. war there. So while the U.S. might not have much of a foreign policy right now, and as we mentioned, we need to develop one ASAP if we're planning on governing anytime soon, which I hope we are, um, it, it doesn't have much of a foreign policy, but it has developed a rather comprehensive, powerful, and radical pro-immigrant rights movement. How how do we work to connect the two? Yeah, absolutely. So the this kind of domestic political vibrancy that we see at the moment on the at the progressive end of the Democratic Party or or amongst um, social democrats and just more generally the left in the United States is exciting, and it does produce an opportunity to think about how to connect the domestic to the foreign. And as you point out, at the moment, one thought is that focusing on the sort of um, true hypocrisy um, and just depravity of a position that says, specifically, we banned Syrian refugees from being resettled in the United States, that we're going to go after them, we're going to identify them in particular as a population to be excluded, even as the United States speaks in the language, supposedly, of standing with, you know, Syrian goals and actors. I mean, it just says everything you need to know about 
the degree to which there's an alignment between U.S. interests um, in Syria and those of local actors who would hope to call for an intervention or who would hope for some assistance from the United States in pursuing their goals. So it's a great starting place from our perspective. And I do think there's another way in which it's important to understand on the left how foreign policy shapes domestic politics. It's, you know, the Cold War framing, the anti-communist framing continues to infect the way that you can present a socialist democratic politics in America today. The word socialist continues to be one that produces, um, you know, sets of responses amongst the American electorate that are, that are deeply alienating. And the reason is tied directly to a sort of ideological set of premises that were built around a post-war foreign policy. The same now is true about the intense Islamophobia that we're experiencing at the moment, but that has been, um, you know, the case since, you know, the 70s. We've had a distinct pronounced um, anti-Muslim bias in the United States that has grown over time and that has framed um, persistently Muslims and more, even more specifically Arabs as terrorists. And that begins from the post-67 construction of Palestinians and then more broadly those aligned with Palestinians as terrorists. And it continues through the hostage crisis and the framing of Iranians and more broadly Muslims again as, as terrorists and then has now you know, been fully crystallized in the war on terror and produces a set of dynamics that then have very important reverberations domestically, including, for example, even at a time when you have have dramatic expressions of support across, you know, a wider swath of the political spectrum than just the left in the United States um, against family separation policies at the border, there's a failure to appreciate the degree to which, for example, the Muslim ban, which has now quietly gone into effect as of December of 2017, and now with the Supreme Court's imprimatur since June of 2018, is in fact also a family separation policy in which, you know, different family members, particularly this affects um, Iranian Americans who have a very large community in the United States that are now fundamentally cut off from their um, broader families, but also all of the countries that are targeted, all of the sort of communities that are excluded, that continues to be um, a far more popular position that Muslim ban uh, domestically in the United States than, for example, the family separation policy. And one reason for that is the tight connection between the foreign policy framing of the Middle East, of Muslims, of Arabs as pathological, as um, you know, inherently anti-American, as, as deeply violent, and so forth, which is continuous with the arguments for the um, interventionist posture of the United States in the region. So these are tightly connected. Yeah, beginning to disaggregate them, I think, is absolutely an imperative. And I, th I think this this uh, false division between domestic and foreign politics also obscures the role that the political and foreign policy establishment have played in the right rise of the far right, um, both in the U.S. and Europe, where the the Syrian refugee crisis has been, I won't say a cause, but at least a pretext for the rise of the far Right. I mean, what I will say is that another thing that the so-called refugee crisis has really revealed is the degree of alignment between the so-called left and right across the spectrum in the United States and in Europe. I mean, the notion that the arrival of one million Syrian refugees on a continent of 500 million people in Europe is a destabilizing crisis that causes the unraveling of the core institutions around human rights, around a political asylum policy, around freedom of movement in Europe— 
when, you know, Lebanon, a country of three and a half million people, has managed in some way or another, not well, of course, and with tremendous challenges, but nonetheless, to be to persist with a, you know, political system intact, having absorbed a similar quantity of refugees, 3.5 million person population versus 500 million person continent, the notion that that was a crisis... I mean, again, countries, individual countries like France can handle 20 million tourists traveling through the country, uh, you know, in a single summer. But the arrival of 1 million people to be dispersed across the continent for humanitarian reasons represents a crisis. It's all crazy. I mean, and the fact that that framing has been uncritically adopted and treated as an article of faith, that in fact, this was a crisis, that this did represent a threat, that there is a destabilizing effect of a sudden influx of uh, this number of refugees, etc., is itself evidence of the fact that not only there's no solidaristic, clear, programmatic approach that can, you know, address an, an argument like this, but this argument is not confined to the right. This is an argument that has found echoes and um, has been treated as legitimate right across the political spectrum. That is an untenable number. That number is impossible. That's crazy. It just doesn't make any sense that 2015, the arrival of a million um, refugees, let's say from Syria, and even that is a kind of stylized fact, but let's say that that's the case, in Europe should constitute a crisis, tells us that there's something profoundly broken about the domestic politics of a continent that went through within, you know, living memory of many of its members, a wrenching, um, devastating global war that produced an enormous refugee crisis, and that then established a new political basis for expressing sovereignty, solidarity, etc., that was supposed to be committed to a set of values, a set of sort of never-again commitments. The idea that that can be tested by something as you know, uh, really de minimis as the arrival of refugees under the conditions that they were arriving, and particularly um, when there had been so much notice. I mean, so for three years, four years, the the war had been producing refugee populations to be absorbed in the frontline states and had not been treated as a crisis. There was no crisis when Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey and Iraq were absorbing Syrian refugees. The crisis is when Europe is asked to. I mean, it just really reveals the profoundly racialized conception of rights. It it's a European crisis. I mean, Crisis, yeah. not a refugee crisis. That's right. It's a it's a crisis that is extremely revealing of Europe, and the fact that President Trump doubles down on that framing to to you know harumph every time he's in Europe about the sort of um, you know however he frames it the threat to European culture and European civilization of the arrival of these um, supposed hordes is you know, it, it speaks directly to the kind of politics that it empowers. But what what gets missed when you focus on the fact that there is this kind of far-right, white nationalist, et cetera, framing that's emerging and that these far-right parties are uh, have used this as political entrepreneurs to sort of opportunistically take advantage of it, is the degree to which the left is completely complicit in accepting the framing that there was a crisis to begin with or the notion that it's impossible to imagine political solutions that, that involve... In incorporating not a million, but millions of refugees in a con continent of 500 million, let alone this country, you know, a country of 360 plus million people can accommodate many, many, many um, orders of magnitude larger and should, I mean, in light of its economy, in light of its direct complicity in having produced the circumstances that have created the refugee crises, and here I mean crises for the refugees themselves, the crises that they have to flee that are forcing them out of their own 
homes and out of their own countries and out of their, you know, out of their deep ties and networks within their um, local position and forcing them to seek shelter outside. We're directly responsible for the conditions that have produced this, and we are more than capable of absorbing uh, huge numbers of refugees uh, and ought to do so. And yet, again, there's no consistent you know, thinking about this. There is certainly a basic position that says we should honor our obligations under the Refugee Convention and we should have a cap that's not 40,000, but 100,000, whatever. But there's no systematic thinking of what is owed specifically to those who have been displaced by conflicts we have produced or contributed to. And there's no more systematic thinking about what should the United States be doing proactively today in order to address the needs of these populations. I mean, the refugee resettlement process is hopeless and broken. The framing of some people as refugees and others as migrants is deeply suspicious and and is being deployed to great advantage with respect to Central American populations, themselves also devastated by decades of American policy in their countries. So, I, I mean, I think that that is really a place where the, the point that you began from, that the place where the domestic and the foreign policy positions of the United States meet around immigration, migration, and refugees is a place to begin to expand the articulation of a new sort of revitalized progressive position in the United States towards domestic policies and expand it out to encompass what this would mean for um, thinking about a progressive foreign policy. One last thing I, I wanted to ask you about is the way that Western media narratives have shaped popular perception and perhaps also policy. In in December 2016, uh, the journalist Patrick Coburn wrote skeptically about reports of government atrocities coming out of Aleppo, not that that the Assad regime doesn't commit atrocities, but uh, what, what Coburn wrote was, quote, the foreign media has allowed, through naivete or self-interest, people who could only operate with the permission of al-Qaeda-type groups, such as Jabhat al-Nusra and Ashar al-Sham, to dominate the news agenda. And then he also wrote, quote, there was a period in 2011 and 2012 when there were genuinely independent opposition activists operating inside Syria. But as the jihadis took over, these brave people were forced to flee abroad, fell silent, or were dead. To your eyes, what is the the most clear-eyed assessment of, of, of what's been going on on the ground and how do you think that dominant American media narratives and, and reporting frames have obscured that. So um, just starting with Patrick Coburn, he, of course, has been identified um, broadly as somehow, quote unquote, pro-Assad or inadequately critical of the Assad regime um, by those who uh, you know support the Syrian opposition and has been dismissed repeatedly. And yet the point he was making, and this again returns to the question of what is it that one needs to assess most urgently when sitting in a place like um, within the United States, which is what are American actions responsible for? And so calling for uh, attending to the consequences of the anti-Islamic state campaign in Mosul, for example, which has utterly laid waste to that city and has produced massacres, but also enormous displacement um, on an equal footing to uh, reporting on Aleppo, where there was very great anticipation that something comparable would happen should Assad regime forces um, retake the city. Uh, that is a de minimis thing to expect, that whether you're covering allies or adversaries, whether you're covering civilians trapped 
under the Assad regime or civilians trapped in a coordinated campaign that the United States is participating in to dislodge the Islamic State. You attend to the civilian consequences and the humanitarian consequences of these military operations in both instances. And there is a fundamental failure in the Western media narrative to do that, to treat these as comparable instances of displacement uh, and uh, human suffering. And that's, I think, something that is worth drawing attention to. Uh, and the reason, of course, in fact, we, until a pair of reporters, investigative reporters, did um, a in-depth, on-the-ground investigation in in Mosul, it seemed as though the the U.S. pronouncements about the low number of civilian casualties in in Mosul were were just sort of accepted at face value. Exactly, and that's a, just a broad tendency to accept that um, the you know as estimates that are provided by uh, this government are credible, while estimates that are provided by all other actors have to be treated with ex- immense skepticism. And then, of course, as this government becomes aligned with other particular actors in the region, the actors that are aligned with the U.S. become more credible, and again, those on the other side are less credible, and so on. So, this way of thinking is once it takes hold in the media, basically means that we're presented with a fundamentally distorted narrative about what's happening in the ground. Again, raising the question, how can an intervention be an expression of meaningful transnational solidarity when the place that's being intervened in is almost always a black box where very, very little is known by those who are speaking in so-called solidaristic terms about the needs of those local actors? What, What did we know about Libya and who the actors were on the ground in Libya as there was a clamor including notably on the left, at least the Democratic within the Democratic Party for intervention there in the name of some kind of uh, human rights or transnational solidarity next to nothing. What was known about who the actors were on the ground in Iraq that we would be um, you know, acting with jointly in the aftermath of the intervention and what is known today by the average American who thinks that we did that Obama did nothing in Syria or did not do enough in Syria about actual actors on the ground. So in in a context in which there's very little access to meaningful knowledge about conditions on the ground and where where the media narrative is being itself framed by the position taken by the government, the ability for the left to think critically about what an intervention may or may not mean is is you know hindered and it requires being able to go beyond the narratives that are provided in the typical um, you know Western media outlets and look look for other credible sources and here I really want to say at least with respect to Syria if the question is what is a clear-eyed assessment. I would strongly recommend um, Jadalia, for example, which is uh, which stands for dialectic in Arabic. It's a website that um, hosts a lot of content um, from analysts that are operating in the Middle East itself, but also those that are originally from the Middle East or who take a critical perspective on um, studying the Middle East here um, based in uh, outside of the region. And they have a Syria media roundup and also a Last Week in Syria series that they produce that highlight key pieces, either because of their critical perspective or influence, but typically pieces that you wouldn't see if you were exclusively um, limiting yourself to um, mainstream sort of uh, media. And then there's also a Salon Syria project, which has been undertaken by the Arab Studies Institute uh, and that has been doing a lot of work. The reporting in Arabic, unsurprisingly, is much more varied and offers more room for nuance than um, what we see in the reporting in English. And, you Shocking. know, the kind, 
Right, exactly. But that's why something like a Jadalia type project is so critical, because it's it's going to be too much to expect the American left to develop a capacity to have sort of linguistic fluency across all the regions in which the United States is present in order to develop a policy, but at least being able to identify those places that are trying to get past that dominant framing and get past the limitation to the government line is essential. And I mean, I can say what that might look like with respect to Syria, but a comparable question has to be raised with respect to you know each of the regions where the United States has made itself into sort of as in, in its own words the indispensable player while basically offering a distorted narrative about what those regions look like and what you know local actors in those regions might pursue for you know the, the American audience that's trying to assess what its government is doing. Asa Bali, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Dan, for having me. Asla Bali is a professor of law and the director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at the UCLA School of Law, and a co-author with Aziz Rana of the essay Remember Syria, published in the Boston Review. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that if the emancipation of the working classes requires their fraternal concurrence, how are they to fulfill that great mission with a foreign policy in pursuit of criminal designs? playing upon national prejudices, and squandering in piratical wars the people's blood and treasure. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, as does spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. 